Welcome to the Artistic Finance Podcast, where we break down the wall between art and money. If you're here looking for how to be an artist and financially sustain a career, you're in the right place. Keep listening and join us as we learn about artists and how they make money work for them. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Ethan Steimel, here for Episode 3. Thank you for listening. These conversations enlighten and educate, and I hope they are entertaining, too. A reminder to please leave a rating and review for our podcast so that the algorithms pick us up and suggest us to other listeners. Today's guest is television writer and children's book author Jill Twiss. She spent six years writing for HBO's Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. Her work on that show earned her four Emmy Awards, as well as multiple Peabody and Writers Guild of America Awards. Her book about a day in the life of Marlon Bundo was a New York Times number one bestseller. In 2019, she wrote The Someone New with a lovable cast of characters. She is bringing that world back with her new book, Everybody Gets a Say, a book about voting. It is coming out in August and is available for pre-order now. Without further ado, let's get to our interview. Welcome, Jill Twist, to the podcast. Thank you. It is an honor. This is April 29th, 2020, and we're amidst the coronavirus COVID-19 shutdown. Can you give us a two-minute recap of your entire life? My name is Jill Twist. Uh, I am primarily a comedy writer. I grew up all over the United States, mostly out west, Idaho, Utah, Montana, Nevada, Minnesota. Uh, I went to college in Virginia and thought that I was going to get into politics or go to law school. Um, and then I freaked out. As I graduated, uh, I auditioned for a children's theater company. I didn't know you could audition and not get cast. So I was like, great, I'm doing this. <laughs> Luckily, I did get cast. Um, I toured for about two years and decided to move to New York City to pursue uh, an acting career in musical theater. I did that as I also started to work on my writing. I started doing stand-up comedy and realized that I had some luck and some skill in comedy. But I I hated performing because I was scared all the time and I wanted to throw up every minute of the day that I wasn't on stage. And so I thought, hey, if you're not happier when people clap, maybe you are a writer. (laughs) And so then I started to try to figure out how to become a comedy writer. And it took years when I worked on writing jokes. I worked on meeting people who wrote comedy. And eventually, about six years ago, I was hired to be a writer for a show called Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, where I wrote for six seasons. During that time, I also started writing children's books. And I have written one book through the show called A Day in the Life of Marlon Bundo, and two other books, one of which is coming out in August about voting. And it's called Everyone Gets a Say. Fantastic. So you didn't train in theater? No, not at all. I didn't know that. I just assumed you had. For people listening, Ethan and I know each other from doing summer stock theater together (laughs) where I was an actress. And he's just now finding out that I had no idea what I was doing. I've never been trained. So when I met you, you were an actor and a musician, like a performer. And looking back, it makes sense because you would pull pranks on people that would involve like letters and writing stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So and then like thinking you were going to go into politics, it makes sense that you would be good at like writing things. No, my prankster career really paid off. Because I thought the writing thing just came out of the blue. Um, I don't think it did. (laughs) I think that it came out of the blue for me and literally no one else. When I was a kid, I found stories that I used to write in 
college, I used to post stories on the inside of like bathroom stalls. It's weird now to go back and go like, oh, obviously I was always a writer. I was just extremely misled by the idea that I could do musical theater. There's nothing like quitting an acting career to realize that like, oh, there are people that were made to do that and you are not one of them. But no, that was not what I trained for. My, I had a music degree and a public policy degree and my music degree was clarinet. It was not anything related to musical theater. <laughs> this is all fantastic. Like I, I, I didn't know half of this. <laughs> <laughs> This is going to be a great interview. You are going to find out so much. <laughs> now that we know about you, I'm just going to ask you questions to sort of learn about your personality as a creative person. What is your favorite theater show to go see as an audience member? My favorite show that I've seen is probably also my favorite show that I've been in, which is the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, uh, which is a musical that happens to have lovely music and lyrics, but also just has an incredibly written book that is so funny and also gives so much room for actors to play around and have a slightly different show every night. I just think it's so rare that a a book writer is also so good at writing jokes. And I think that was the case with that show. Amazing. Okay. Do you have a favorite piece of art? I've been thinking about as art, the TV show, The Good Place. If you haven't seen it, I'm jealous of you because you get to have that experience again. It's a show that when you start, you're like, oh, these had good jokes. And I'm vaguely interested in the characters. And as you go through the seasons, you realize that they are like renewing the show every week and you have no idea what kind of show it's going to be. And they also deal with like some real big moral questions. And I enjoyed it so much as art. Fantastic. I haven't seen it. I will add it to my list. I'll go see it. Do you have a favorite art book or maybe just a favorite book? I will be truly honest and probably disagree with a lot of other people. I don't do very well with those sort of real artsy, real like find your inner creative personality books. I I think they're probably very good for some people, but I get exasperated. I really just want a book that's like sit down, work harder, practice, you'll get better. I don't know what to tell you, Uh, (laughs) which is not a great book and I won't write it. Um, I was trying to think of a book that might have helped me with comedy writing. And I actually thought of a book called I Killed True Stories of the Road, which is not a how to do comedy book. It's a book that is the stories of just crazy and terrible things that happened to comedians when they were on the road. And it was a very fair and realistic portrayal of what it's like to be a comic on the road, which is like, honestly, not that great. You stay in these horrible apartments with like other weird comedians you get paid very little if there was anything that prepared me for a career as a road comic which uh i did not have because i learned very quickly i did not want one um it would be that book amazing i remember seeing when i was in college i was at missouri state university in springfield missouri and george carlin came and i had i had i was a very uh conservative upbringing i had no idea who george carlin was So I go to see him and it was his last tour or maybe a second to last, but I went to see it and it was amazing. But I was thinking like, here's this guy, one of the most famous stand-up comedians ever. And he's coming to like our random college town where he's like probably up to like three, four, five in the morning. And then he's going to like the next city, Kansas City or something like that. And I remember thinking like, I would never want to be a stand-up comic. Yeah. 
I sort of thought ahead and was like, you know, I'm doing okay in stand-up comedy. I was doing like six or eight shows a week in the city. I could get work out of town. And then I was like, what does the best case scenario for this look like? And I realized that like there was no scenario that involved me getting health insurance that did not involve me doing something other than stand-up comedy. Like sure, eventually you could get a sitcom, but that's not stand-up comedy. Like eventually you could get a writing job and you could get health insurance and you could, you know, but that's not stand-up comedy. Like the best possible version of stand-up comedy at that time, which was before Obamacare, was you have no path to retirement or health insurance. And I, I don't need like a super steady life at all, but just kind of realizing that like the pinnacle of your success is still like a show that might go really poorly at any moment <laughs> kind of made me go like, I guess I need a little bit of security. I guess I need something. Right. Do you, perhaps when you're working on a new book or something, um, where do you get your inspiration from? Um, all over, because of course it depends on what I'm working on. But if I had one piece of advice that I could give people that it, that motivates me or inspires me, it's watch or read incredibly bad versions of the thing you want to do read good stuff too like really good work will inspire you but I find that really good work often especially when I'm working on something will intimidate me so like if I'm writing a musical and I listen to Hamilton I'm like well I can never do that and I become immobilized but like if I watch the shittiest whatever version of the thing I want to do I start to go oh yeah like I can do better than that like that guy put that out there like if he can do that I can absolutely put out you know I was writing this is sounds horribly negative but it's incredibly effective for me to just to sit and look I was writing a play and I would have these moments where I would go like who am I to write a play. Like, what am I even doing? There are people that study this for years. They get graduate degrees in it. And then I like started reading some plays and like, there's a lot of great plays, but like nothing inspired me more than like a terrible play that got published. And I could go, you know what? Like if that play exists, I can write my first play. I absolutely love that. So in my college training or whatever, I had to draw and paint. I had to take classes and I was never good at it. I tried. <laughs> in theater, you have these giant drops, like a, a huge drop. So it's like a 30 foot by 60 foot wide drop and people would have to paint them. This goes with drafting or anything, but where do you start? Like a lot of people just like take a bucket of paint and just pour it on and like ruin the canvas, you know, but it's sort of like that same thing of seeing something that's not perfect. Like you just have to make it work. However, it's going to work. I think that there's, and, and everyone's different. Like some people need to be edited and to told, you know, they need to be told to like, shut up and calm down and not put all their stuff out there. But I'm not one of those people. I'm a person who can get very into the rules and very into like, you know, am I good enough to do this? And it's so helpful to me to see people who are much worse than I am, or or they're not, and I have horrible judgment, um, which is fine. Lie to yourself. I don't care. Like, all you have to do is get something on the page, and then you can fix it. But it is it is that step of, like, allowing yourself to do it, and I get inspired so often by bad work. I also get inspired by, like, when I have to write a joke or had to write a joke for the show, 
and it was my job and I couldn't not write a joke, but like nothing was funny. I would go back to old jokes just to like remind my brain what a joke is. Oh, like here's what jokes sound like. Here's what books sound like. When I have to write a children's book, I'll read like 40 children's books to just get the idea of like, oh yeah, this is the rhythm of like what a kid's book sounds like. Here's what kind of works. Um, And that works for me too, but nothing inspires me more than something real bad that is just just it's just terrible that they are like confidently putting out there that's so funny because i like try to ignore bad stuff like i do the opposite of that (laughs) it's it's vindictive i i believe highly in you know when i said i don't really like those artsy books i think a lot of it is like they are not realistic for like what makes me produce work if there was a book that was like hey, here's some advice. Like, think about your ex-boyfriend and how mad he'd be if it turned out like you'd written a best-selling novel. And then I'll be like, that'll get me through two chapters. <laughs> like, think about the girl in high school who was so mean to you. Like, think how crummy she'd feel when you got a Tony Award. Okay, then I'll go write my play. Amazing. So besides Broadway cast recordings, What music do you listen to? Almost none. I think lyrics are really important to me. So I either listen to something that I can write to, which means that I listen to music without words. Like I'll listen to like soundtracks of movies that are, you know, driving and vaguely inspiring. Or if I'm listening to something on purpose, I'm probably listening to musical theater. Amazing. (laughs) We Nicole and I watched The Mask of Zorro recently. The music is so good. I used to have the CD of that and I would listen to it. But then like seeing the movie and hearing it all came back, it was like, oh my gosh. There's something really nice to to writing to an extremely like active and inspiring soundtrack. If you have time, what are some of your hobbies? I think about this a lot because I think that I don't really have hobbies, which is not healthy. Every time I really like doing something, I try to turn it into a job. And so I used to be super obsessed with the National Spelling Bee. And it was like a fun thing that I was like interested and started to watch. But then I realized they have writers. So I emailed them and I got hired to be a writer for the National Spelling Bee. So now it's not like a fun hobby anymore. (laughs) I have actively decided to start doing crossword puzzles because... That has to be a hobby, and I'm horrible at them. I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to develop a hobby. We'll see. I like naming dogs. I like naming other people's dogs, and that's, I think, never going to make me any money, so that might be my truest hobby. Yeah. Well, you. I guess I should mention you have a very active Twitter feed. <laughs> you randomly will name dogs yes. or things, you know. But, I mean, I never know what you're going to say. <laughs> I love to watch, like, the Westminster Dog Show and rename all of the dogs with better names. That is, that's my hobby. <laughs> okay, so now that's your creative personality. Now let's get to know your financial personality. I'm going to have you describe your demographics because I don't want to reveal anything you don't want revealed (laughs) or assign you anything that you don't want to be assigned. So uh, your demographics. Sure. Um, I am white. I am not telling you my age because I work in the entertainment industry. (laughs) Can you give us a generation that you identify with? You don't have to. You totally don't have to. I also don't. I, I feel like I'm in the generation that no one knows what they are. But I think I'm like very earliest millennial, very end of whatever was before that. I'm not sure. So no, the answer is no. That's not helpful. I can't do that. But um, but I got hired at last week tonight when I was in my 30s. 
So that gives you some idea. And I'm not 73. (laughs) I went to college and graduated. uh, And I grew up all over the United States. But most of my childhood was spent in the West and in the Midwest. Okay. What did your finances look like when you started your career? Well, until I got hired at Last Week Tonight, I made very little money, basically. I lived in New York City at times on probably about $15,000 a year. I worked a weird variety of jobs. Gosh, I worked in a jury consulting firm where we would have pretend trials and help lawyers pick their juries. I tried waiting tables and I realized that I was like a great Midwestern waitress, um, which is like a person who like drops things and everyone feels bad. So they tip you more. But like a terrible New York City waitress where they want you to not be charming and get their orders right. So I did that for an extremely short period of time. And for the longest time of any of it, uh, while I was an actor and I did, you know, various regional theater and summer stock theaters, I was also a standardized test tutor. Um, And that's where most of my money came from. Um, I started out by teaching the LSAT, uh, which is the law school entrance exam, because I had taken the LSAT and planned to go to law school. Eventually, I went into SATs and ACTs because that's where the money was. I worked for a super expensive test prep company. I will say if you can get that job, it's a good job because you can get paid a lot of money to work fewer hours a week. But what I did is I would literally work like 10 hours a week and be like, I don't need money. I don't want to work. And I would just live on as little money as I humanly could. Amazing. Fascinating. (laughs) Okay. Are you a saver or a spender? I'm definitely a saver. Even when I was making $15,000 a year, somehow I saved a little bit of money. I don't actively think about saving. It's just that most of the things I like to do don't cost money. And I always was okay. So I have always saved money somehow. I... I want to like say clearly there's a reason I could do that. And that's because I came out of college with no debt because my parents paid for me to go to a state school. Not everyone can be a saver on very little money in New York City. I had a lot of lucky breaks. um, But yeah, I do tend to save money. I'm going to touch on student debt. When I first made the outline for this podcast, I had a question, which was, did you have student debt? Because my generation, let's call me middle millennial. Every single person I know has student debt. Mm -hmm. The only way you didn't have it was if your parents paid for your schooling or if you got enough scholarships. But that's like 10% of people, maybe not even that many. Virtually everybody I know had student debt. So I think it's a massive difference maker from start. Like even if you start a career only making $15,000, if you at least don't have student debt, you're so much better off than the person next to you. Exactly right. Starting at zero sounds hard until you realize that some some people are starting at negative $100,000. A couple of things made that possible for me. I went to schools in Virginia, and Virginia has really good state schools. I think a year was probably about $10,000. It was much cheaper then. And my parents had always to- told me, my dad worked for the government, um, and he saved and he paid for me to go to a state school. And then I was an RA, so I got free housing. And so I managed to come out of that breaking even, which would have never happened without my parents. And I think affected every choice I could make after that. uh, Would I have gone on tour for two years if I had student debt? Probably not. Would I have moved to New York? Probably not. It's such a different life to know that like, yeah, you're, you don't have any money, but you also don't owe anybody any money. So you don't have any obligation. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to follow up with a little bit of an uncomfortable 
topic that I want to address, though, and it's something I've always said to people. It's like, I'm a white male. So like, even if I think I'm poor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, like I have an easier life than a lot of other people, at least in the United States. Like going into theater, I'm not saying there's a minority problem and that most people are white or privileged, but... (laughs) I'm saying that. You don't have to say it, Ethan. I'll say it. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But it's like, would I have gone into theater... Like, like I consider myself like, you know, I paid my way through school and, you know, I'm, I, I took a bunch of steps to like make myself financially okay or whatever. Um, and so I, I did a lot of work. However, there are other people that couldn't have made the sacrifices, sacrifices that I made and gotten to where I am. Like, I, like I just had the privilege of being able to do it. I I didn't say that right at all. (laughs) No, I think you did. I think that again, it's, Starting from zero sounds hard until you think about starting from a negative number. Like, yeah, I didn't take money from my parents when I was an actress. I managed to make a living. And that was always a rule I had for myself is like, yeah, Jill, you can have any career you want, but you have to live on it. If you have to take money from anybody else, then you don't get to do it anymore. You have to find another job. But There are people, I also didn't have to support my parents. I also didn't have to like support brothers and sisters or pay back other people's debts or, you know, all kinds of things that, you know, I I know a lot of people who are supporting families and I can go like, oh yeah, it was super easy for me to live on $15,000 a year. Well, there are a lot of people who can't afford to make that choice or take that risk because they live a very different kind of life. Right. Yeah. All right. Good. Good. Good for us for talking about that. (laughs) Um, Are you risk averse or a risk taker? Money wise, I think I'm risk averse. I'm not I have no interest in gambling. I you know what the statistics are in every game and none of them are that you're going to make money. So I don't understand. Like I, I get absolutely no adrenaline rush from it at all. Um, I have like the boringest stock portfolio. Um, but in life, I think I'm a risk taker. I've always been happy to put my work out there or try a new thing or try a new career or, you know, get up on stage and try something brave. But like money wise, it's just I, I don't get that. I don't get any kind of like rush from doing weird risky money things. And you touched on this a little bit, but how did you grow up around finance? Like, did you have good examples? Um, I now realize I did. I thought we grew up poor because my parents were worried about money all the time. And it was like drilled into my head that you have to be careful about money all the time. And as I look back, my parents were government employees doing relatively well in their careers. We were fine. They were just, they both grew up extremely poor. So there's like, a lot of things that I didn't find out till I was an adult. It was embarrassingly into adulthood that I learned you could not pay off your credit card every month. I didn't know that was what a credit card was for. <laughs> I thought a credit card was just a thing where like you got to like pay for something and then you paid for it at the end of the month. It was just like a thing to make your life a little easier. I had no idea that you could whatever you can do with credit cards, pay five or 10% of it and like accumulate debt. That was just something my parents chose never to teach me. And I didn't know, you know, there were a lot of good habits that were ingrained in me, but it was also just like me not knowing how money worked. (laughs) 
what was the political landscape as you started out? I think for a lot of people, it was probably the 2008 financial crisis. Um, I had the advantage of being super poor then. So I had no money in anything that mattered. So I felt it not at all. (laughs) I remember thinking like, whoa, everyone else is just a little more like me right now. Nothing in the stock market, nothing out there. Um, but yeah. Do you think about money often, like on a daily basis? I mostly don't. I mostly never have in that, like, I have mostly just always spent less than I had and been okay. The biggest worry about money is usually when I have to switch apartments. Um, and in New York City, there are cheap apartments to be had, or at least cheap apartments you can share with people to, to be had, but they are so much work to find. So I feel like that's what I thought about money in the most because that's what you know you have to pay it every month there's nothing you can do about it I think about money more because of coronavirus than I probably ever have in my life just because it is a thing where you have to start to think about like what's coming up I've never thought or worried about not having a job but you have to think like oh lots of people don't have jobs right now or aren't going to have jobs so I think about a lot but it's not like a general source of my stress yeah Like when you have excess money, if you do, where do you put it? I save it. I'm making it sound like I'm really like have a well-planned financial life and I don't at all. It's more that I don't spend it than it is that I save it um, because I'm actually really bad at getting it from my checking account into my investment account. But I don't tend to spend a ton of money when I do. Like I buy the food I want to buy. I don't buy a ton of other things. Here's the embarrassing thing that I do have. I like to buy experiences or I like to spend money on like things like voice lessons or, you know, if I, I've been thinking now, like I'd love to take piano lessons or something like that. Um, And gym memberships and a truly embarrassing thing about me makes sense if I explain it, but it's not worth explaining it is that I have three gym memberships. (laughs) It's horrifying. It's embarrassing. And I should be like in amazing shape. And I do go to all three gyms. Not right now, but I do. Uh, But it it, it's it's humiliating. (laughs) I'm just going to ask you. I can cut it out. Yeah, explain it. Like, is it location-based, which is why? There's one gym called Mark Fisher Fitness where I do training. Um, so that's like I do lift heavy weights, whatever. But it is a it's a mile and a half walk from my apartment. And there's no sensible way to get there by any other way than walking. So I'm not going to go there like six days a week. I go there once a week for training. I needed another gym closer to my apartment, or at least not a mile and a half away from my apartment, where I could also lift heavy weights. So I joined another gym called the Mercedes Club. And then my apartment building actually has a gym. It just doesn't have any heavy weights. It's like treadmills and stuff. And they gave me a free membership this year to try to like make sure I stayed in the building. So I ended up with a heavyweights gym, a training gym, and then a gym in my apartment that I don't pay for, but I actually go to kind of a lot. So it's, it's awful. I don't, I just don't know. Okay. All right. (laughs) That, that makes sense. (laughs) I think we've already answered this, but do you consider yourself bad with money or a money wizard? Uh, Definitely neither one, but I don't think I'm especially bad with money. You seem like you have a head on your shoulders. (laughs) (laughs) Have you used a budget? Never once in my whole life. 
Although I think that you're you're more able to just look up online how you're doing and make sure, you know, I, I remember watching like my parents balance a checkbook. That's not something I've ever done in my life because you can just look and be like, oh, okay, I have this much money and I am not spending more than that. I sort of look at budgets sort of like your the art book, like where you're like, I don't really like those artsy. <laughs> I sort of like a budget to me. It's like, I don't know. It's just useless to make one because it's like always changing. And I've done like a money program that tells you where you spend your money. So you're able to look and be like, you're spending $42,000 on Starbucks or whatever. I'm not doing that, but someone might be. (laughs) Um, And I think that's interesting and relevant if you want to cut down on that thing that you're doing. Um, But also, I kind of know what I'm spending. I'm aware. I am me. Right. I Yeah, I agree. What has been the best financial decision you've ever made? Two of them are what I said, and they were not decisions that I made. One no student debt um, is one of the biggest things that I gifts I was ever given. Two, I pay off my credit card every month and I always have. So I just got lucky by not knowing <laughs> that I could uh, borrow money through my credit card. Um, the other thing, I regularly put money into index funds, which are basically combinations of every stock in the S&P 500 or every stock out there. Um, so you don't have to know anything about stocks or pick and choose stocks. And they virtually always beat any hedge fund that's trying to pick stocks anyway. And you just put money in there and you quietly ignore it, hopefully until you retire. And and that's something I did when I started making more money. I started putting a lot more money in those. And the other smart decision I've made is to not look at that account um, since everything went bad because uh, I don't need it right now luckily, and it will just make me sad. And the markets come back. That's how money works. That's how it's always worked. And there's no reason to make myself sad about it because, you know, it's going to come back and nothing I can do about it. Okay. So what was the worst financial decision you ever made? I don't have anything big. It's mostly that I'll, you know what it is? It's that I buy jumpsuits online and I don't look good in jumpsuits and I've never looked good in a jumpsuit. And so why would I buy another one online that I'm convinced I'm going to look great in? (laughs) I don't have like major financial decisions, but I have the repeated practice of continually buying jumps. I've bought like four jumpsuits online knowing that I do not have the proportions that look good in jumpsuits. And I think this one will be different and none of them are ever different. <laughs> I, I'm expecting that no one will ever give me that same answer ever again <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> well, I would have told you about my three gym memberships, but I already blurted that out. <laughs> oh, okay, fair, fair. <laughs> Do you have uh, an entity, a corporation, an, an LLC, or is it just every time you get paid, you, Jill Twist, are getting the paycheck? Um, I just get paid. As a, uh, as a writer for a TV show, uh, I also didn't have an agent So that makes a big difference in whether or not you would incorporate. And because I was getting all of my paycheck anyway, I wasn't giving 10% of it to an agent or 15% to a manager. It made more sense for me to just stay being me, although that could change in the future. Wait, so you still don't have an agent? I still don't. Well, right now, no one in the Writers Guild has agents because, or very few people because they're in a dispute with the big three agencies about packaging fees and all that. So sort of like in the 2008 financial crisis when everyone else was poor and so was I. And I was like, they all just came down to my level. I've never had an agent. I've always negotiated my own contracts. And so finally, everyone else also has to learn to do that. (laughs) Okay. Uh, W-2 versus 1099 income. Sure. 
Uh, I mean, it's definitely going to change and I'm sure will change drastically somehow um, because of what's going on right now. Um, But as a TV writer, the vast majority of my income was W-2, just regular. I got paid every week, just like, you know, anybody working at a like business or a corporation um, and they took out taxes because I wrote a book Um, last year, I wrote a book called The Someone New, which was a kid's book that came out in 2019. That I got paid for on 1099s because that went through my book agent. Well, probably not because. Additionally, that went through my book agent. Um, So that really messed up my taxes. And I'm supposed to be paying things quarterly, but I'm really bad at that. So I've probably messed things up this year. Yeah. Yeah. I don't pay quarterly. I'm supposed to. I never have, and I just assume like I don't make enough money that the IRS has never yelled at me for it or penalized me. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think that you're supposed to if you know exactly how much you're going to be wrong about taxes at the end of the year, and also obviously pay attention when you make more money. I think I had like a little fee last year, which I didn't even really understand because I didn't know I was going to get a book deal, so I could not have prepared earlier in the year. Nevertheless, I have tried to figure it out a little better this year, but book income is hard to predict because you also get money from book sales. So do you file your own taxes? I don't, but I did until like three years ago. It's it's kind of weird because I actually filed my taxes myself when they were the absolute hardest to file because when I was an actor and I had like six jobs and I worked in like four different states and I had to file taxes in all of those states to get the money back and I had to, you know, and I had like a home office and I had everything. I did my own taxes then and then finally when I got a job as a TV writer, I was like, I'm going to hire someone to do this and my taxes are actually a thousand times simpler now but I have it in my head that like he knows some tricks that like I didn't need to know when I made no money because all I had to do was like keep doing my taxes till I got all my money back that I'd paid whereas like now I pay a lot in taxes so I'm like maybe he knows something and also I don't have time and it's it's delightful to have that luxury because they were miserable uh, when I used to do them yeah yeah okay I think you already said how you invest, which is index funds. Is that your retirement plan or do you have, is there more to your retirement plan? That is part of my retirement plan. Um, I do just for people that care. I do index funds at Vanguard because they have the cheapest fees of pretty much any place. And they're super easy and I like them a lot. And they are not paying me to say that. I wish they would. That would be really nice. Additionally, I have some kind of pension from the Writers Guild. I don't know what it is. Basically, if you are in a guild covered show, the show has to put a certain amount of money toward your pension every week. You don't get vested in that pension until you've earned that amount of money for five years, but I met more than five years in the Writers Guild. So that means that at some point I will get some kind of pension from the Writers Guild. Do not know what it is, have never understood it, will Google it when I get older. Because I never thought I would have that, I sort of took other plans. So I have a Roth IRA that I had from when I made way less money. I'm not eligible for a Roth IRA anymore. Congratulations. Um, I have, <laughs> yay. That's one of the drawbacks, but it's also good to get paid more money than you used to. I think I have a regular IRA, and then I think I'm actually not eligible for that anymore. What? I didn't know that was possible. You get past the part where you can have a deductible regular IRA. Oh. Um, so now I think I can still put money in an IRA, but it's not deductible anymore. You, you get to a certain amount of money and you 
no longer get any sort of tax break for saving for your own retirement, which I guess is fair. Yeah, yeah, totally fair. And then I have regular money that's just like money I've saved. Okay, amazing. So I guess like your IRAs and your investing is sort of like what you consider your main retirement and then whatever the writer guild thing will just be a bonus on top of that perhaps i mean right now i think that i would also like to have another 20 or 30 years as a tv writer at that point i would like to think i truly don't know how good our pension program is it's something i should know but i just sit there and i go hey i never thought other people would be putting money into an account for me and now they are like what a treat and that's the most i've learned about it i've learned not a single other thing you you make it sound like people are gracious like, oh, just out of the kindness of our heart, <laughs> we're going to give Jill money. And, it, and you're not like being like, that's what it feels like. Yeah, but you're you're working for it. And there's like, it's a union-ish thing that like people have like bargained for. <laughs> it's the way it's presented to me. If I thought I made a certain amount of money, but then we're t- they're like, but we're taking out this much for retirement, then I'd be like, that sucks. They're taking away my money for retirement. But since I still get the amount they originally said, and then somehow there's a secret other money that they're putting in a retirement fund for me. Uh, it feels like a like a gift, but you were correct. Uh, it's not that. I've worked extremely hard uh, for all of that money, and the Writers Guild has worked extremely hard to make sure that I will have that money and to make sure, I think, that the, that the pension fund is solvent uh, so that it will still be there um, when I retire. It's so hard for me to imagine this, like, magic other money that I just assume I will always have to pay for everything in my life and I should save accordingly. There's a thing called the 80-20 rule. 80% of your money comes from 20% of your work and then 20% of your money comes from 80% of your jobs or your work. Have you seen that at all in your career or not? I would say that's mostly not true for me in that most of my money for the last few years has come from my TV writing job, which is so much work. 3% of my jokes make all of my money. I will probably write, I'm not even making this up, a hundred jokes for everyone that goes on television and are the things that like win us Emmys and like get us prizes and get me raises and whatever. And I've written another 97, 98 jokes there that are not why they're paying me. But no, I I think uh, children's book writing is probably close to that. Like the first book I wrote, uh, which was for the show, A Day in the Life of Marlon Bundo, I wrote in like two hours, maybe, maybe two hours, because I thought like, no one's ever going to publish this. So why would I waste time on it? It was the easiest thing I ever wrote. The book did very well. I got a book deal, which the next book took me more than two hours. I would say significantly less time to write a 1000 word children's book than the amount of money I was paid to write it. How important has your personal support system been? I would say very important, but I will say like I struggled a lot because of who I didn't know. I spent years just trying to find out how to apply for a job at late night television and no one would tell me and I didn't have the friends that like broke through first. But what happened is that I tutored a kid for the SAT whose mother worked for Worldwide Pants, David Letterman's production company. And luckily he did well in the SAT and I went to her and I said, could you ever get it so that I could write a packet for Letterman? And she was like, yes, I can. You don't want to work there, but sure, make me a packet. I asked everyone I knew if they knew anyone who wrote for Late Night that could read my packet to make sure I wasn't just writing insane things. One friend introduced me to a woman named Lori Kilmartin, who 
was and is a writer for Conan, and she said she'd read it, and she wrote me back, and she said, this is great. Send me more stuff. And I sent her more stuff, and she never answered me again for about five years, and I went, oh, I'm a terrible writer, and David Letterman didn't hire me. Then five years later, I got an email from a woman that said, would you like to write for late night television? Lori Kilmartin gave me your name. And Lori had sat on my name for five years until someone came to her and said, do you know any women that should be writing for television? And Lori said, oh, yeah. I know exactly who should be writing. And this woman was basically like, I think there should be more women writing for TV. I can't get you a job, but I can I can tell you where jobs are. I can get your packet read. The second packet she asked me to write was for Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. John read the packets blind, meaning that he didn't have resumes. He didn't have names. He had no information about us. So he could choose what he thought were the best writers for his show, not based on, you know, whether we went to Harvard or whatever. And I got the job. But all of it happened because of a network I had, and it would have happened faster if I had had a better network in the entertainment community. So are you good at networking or you hate networking? I do not (laughs) like it. Um, I like people and I like making friends and I like all of that stuff. I hate asking for things. I will not do it. I hate asking for favors. I enjoy helping out other people. And now that I've been in a position to like give other people information about shows that might be hiring or something, I like that a lot. But there is nothing I hate more than asking people for a favor or trying to sell people things or like trying to make people like me so that I can get something. I also hate it. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, how much of your success in your career has been hard work versus luck? It's about 50-50. You know, when I told that story, there's such tremendous amount of luck in it as far as to tutor a kid whose mom worked for Letterman or happening to have some stuff on Twitter that a woman who was looking for writers saw. But on the other hand, when I decided I wanted to write for late night television, I read everything I could find about like what late night TV writers did. I remember reading an article that was like the Tonight Show, or I'm making this up, but they they write monologue jokes from 10 a.m. and they turn in their first set of monologue jokes at noon. And I went, I can do that two hours every day. I'm going to write monologue jokes. Nobody's going to read them. Nobody cares, but I'm going to sit and I'm going to get better at writing jokes. And I think about it now. And that's kind of the only thing that got me through the first couple of years. Once I did finally get hired at a show, I had learned how to write as a job as opposed to write when you're inspired to write, which is an entirely different kind of writing. So I think that a lot of it, and and especially a lot of my first work at Last Week Tonight was all about my hard work. Like I would just stay up all night and try to like make the jokes better and better and better because I felt like I didn't necessarily have the natural skill and I didn't have the years of like having done this to be able to keep up. But it's all luck. There's so much luck involved. <laughs> <laughs> luck is always involved, but it's like you also like moved to New York and tried to do it. So like you put yourself in position to take advantage of the luck. You can't really decipher which part is luck and which was the hard work. Yeah, I always tell people if you want to make it in as a writer, at least in this industry, you have to make stuff constantly and put it in a place where people can see it. Everything else, like, is not so much up to you, but, like, if you do that, someone will see it 
eventually. You just have to keep doing the work and making sure it's good and putting it out there. And it might take a really long time, but people will see it. All right. What is your financial goal for this year? I think my goal is just to not come out behind. I think if I could get through this year and be monetarily in a similar position to where I was last year, I would have succeeded greatly. Yeah. I feel like that's a a lot of people are hoping for that goal. (laughs) Do you have a personal goal for this year? Well, my personal goal, if we're talking in the year 2020, is very unrealistic, um, which is that I would like to get my play produced. Uh, Um, I realized that like in the year 2020, it might not. But uh, a goal for me this year was to finish writing the play. And I did finally finish a draft of a play that I'm pretty happy with. A goal when theater exists in public places is to get my play produced. Yeah, that's a lot of our goals too. (laughs) Now I'm thinking of all the plays that I'm trying to get off their on their feet. Oh man, yeah, 2020. We'll see. (laughs) Well, it was my my show uh, is about the Seneca Falls Convention, which was when it's it's a comedy about the Seneca Falls Convention, which was when women first asked for the right to vote in 1848. Um, And it's a comedy because they all died and none of them ever voted. Good. (laughs) Um, But spoiler alert, that's the end of the show. It was important to me to get it done in 2020, because that was the hundred that was the centennial of 1920 when women got the right to vote and suddenly that feels less like the focus of this year so it's like oh well you know what it's gonna be okay if it happens in 2021 no one's gonna not understand why it didn't happen this year yeah what would your goal be if money was not an issue same goal I think to get my play produced I think I'm sure money is an issue, but I'm, yeah, but I'm so far from that. And I don't think like if I was a bazillionaire that I would just put it up myself because I I want someone else's judgment involved anyway. So I don't think things would change too much for me. Uh, What financial advice would you give yourself back when you started your career and, or would you give to somebody starting out now? Save something early everyone is like, save 20% of what you make, or you can say any number you want. If you can't save any money, you can't save any money if you don't have any money. But I will say that like, if you save money, and then you can put it in index funds, the stock market over a few decades goes up a lot. And the earlier you can start saving, if you Google compounding interest, and you really understand it, you become suddenly really excited and thrilled about how much free money you get just by investing when you're 23 instead of investing when you're 46. That was the thing that made me first open up an IRA. Okay, so when I was in college, you could get magazine subscriptions for like $3. You could get a magazine subscription for a year or whatever. I got one for Nicole's birthday. And while I was at it, I was like, oh, well, let me get Money Magazine. So I got Money Magazine. Each article or each magazine only has like three actual articles. Every time I would read the articles, And one of them said, like, if you want to be a millionaire by the time you're 60, do this. At age 18, start saving $10 a week. You know, it's just something like so low. And at the time, I was like 21 already. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm three years behind. (laughs) So I was like, let me like put $300 in this account. Because you're saying Google compound interest and understand it. It's like it will take you two minutes to understand it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, And you will get excited. Yeah, if you think about that and then you think about The other big thing I had to understand was that I don't need to learn anything about stocks, that the market as a whole makes more money than almost any individual stock. So don't worry about that. If you're into gambling, great, play the stock market. But if you just want to make 
money while not doing things. You save what you can. And again, like that's easy to say and really hard to do. But if you can, it's worth it. I agree. Because I'm always encouraging people to open up IRAs because in my head, I'm like, if you just start $10, like, and I say laughable amounts, like $10 a month. And people are like laughing at me like, oh, so at the end of the year, I have $120. And yeah, okay, it's laughable, but it's more than zero. The other thing people say is like, okay, well, if I open it up, like, what do I put it in? And I give the same answer, which is just like S&P 500 index fund. But people like want a stock. And I'm like, stock, that's just too much energy and time. Like, that's a waste of time to to research it. You don't have to think about it. In fact, like almost the more you think about it, the more you're going to mess it up somehow. Oh, for sure. No, the the head of, say, of Vanguard Jack Bogle. did a competition with hedge funds yeah. where he got any hedge fund person who thought they could make more money than him just investing in an index fund over a period of, I think it was like 10 years, was welcome. Like the winner would get a million dollars or something. And they all lost. Yeah. Um, They all lost to the market. Hedge fund people, anybody putting their money in there. I, I don't understand why at this point, because they almost all lose to the market. So you are so much smarter than anybody who is making their money <laughs> from advising people about money. I, that's not really true. <laughs> not true. Not true at all. <laughs> okay. So now some questions from Nicole, who you know is my wife. I do know but, that. And I guess now everybody else, if they've listened to enough of uh, these podcasts, they know that. Um, so she has questions from a non-theater person. Her first question is, why do a majority of theater people have no savings or retirement savings? Um, because they do not make very much money is definitely a part of it. But I also feel like some of it is the insecurity of not knowing what kind of money you're going to have later. So I think part of you is just like, let's just live on what I have right now. I can't think ahead. I don't know when I'm going to get another job. I don't know what. And I think that leads some people to save more because they're like, ah, I might never have a job again. But it leaves some people to just be like, I can't possibly plan for the future. So why not just spend what I have? Also, I have no idea. Right. (laughs) Here's something else you have no idea on. How will COVID-19 affect the future of theater? Oh, Ethan, I'm so glad you asked. I have a definitive answer to this. That is clearly going to turn out to be exactly accurate. You're going to play this in the year 2022 and people are going to be like, Jill Twist was spot on about theater. Um, I think the main thing is that people are going to be really into a play about the Seneca Falls Convention. Yeah, absolutely. That it's it's somehow going to become insanely popular and everyone who produces it is going to make a lot of money. No, truly, I, I, I have no idea. I think that it would be silly not to acknowledge that theater is a thing where people gather in hopefully large groups if the theater is doing well. Um, and that's not safe right now. We don't know when it will be. But no part of me thinks theater won't come back. I think people like to go like, well, then everybody's going to start doing things on Zoom and they're going to absolutely not. There will never be a substitute for a bunch of people sitting in a room having a live experience together. And that will come back and it will come back well During this time, people will have created amazing things that we will all get to see. But I don't know when it will come back. Do you think now is a good time for people to go into the arts, like students? I think for a lot of reasons, it's a great time. You have so many opportunities to train without having to spend a lot of money. 
and without having to go and learn directly from an amazing teacher. You know, you can take voice lessons from an app now. You can do all kinds of things. And so in a lot of ways, it's a great time to go into the arts. I also think it's always a great time to go in the arts because there are no people better prepared for a crisis than theater people. Theater people are the people you want in every crisis because they know how to deal with unexpected situations. They know how to sell something. They know how to build something. Any skill you get right now that has to do with the arts is going to benefit you whether or not you choose to have a career in the arts. But I also think it's important to be able to save a little money and stay alive, take care of your family and be comfortable. And so I always had lots of other jobs while I was pursuing the arts. And I think like a lot of people do and should. Are you in unions? Which ones and the pros and cons of being in said union? I am in the Writers Guild which I have loved. I didn't have an option of not joining. Uh, Last week tonight was a Guild-covered show, so when I got hired, I had to join the Writers Guild. Uh, I will say for me, it's been great, partially because they have things like minimum amounts I have to get paid. Um, And like the minimum amount I had to get paid for working at Last Week Tonight was more than I would have dared to ask for as a person coming out of, you know, my job as an SAT tutor. Uh, So it really helped me as far as like setting a baseline for the industry. I've been able to go to them when I've had like small legal questions. I I can't speak for unions in general, but I think on the whole, they're fighting hard for their employees to have things like basic pay. I wouldn't have a pension without the Writers Guild. Um, I wouldn't have, you know healthcare without the Writers Guild. Are there, uh, for writers, are there any other unions or is that the only one? You know, I don't know. I think it is, there are things, I think there's like an animation union of some kind. I don't know what it is. There's like the Dramatist Guild is, I think, for theater writers, but I don't know if they are required to join it. And so I'm guessing there are others than that too. That union only applies when you're working on a Guild-covered show, but there's there's nothing that they're doing to stop you from going and writing a children's book or going and writing a play or going and writing any other sort of thing? No, the Writers Guild uh, wants me to write as much as possible. There's things that are covered by them and things that aren't. They don't care if I write a children's book. They're happy for me to write a play. As far as I know, they'd be happy for me to write at a second Guild-covered show. It's just, you know, the show I work for might not be okay with that. But yeah, no, the the Writers Guild has been primarily just about getting me as much work as I can handle and then helping me figure out how to negotiate whatever I need to within it. Okay, we're almost to the last two questions, but I just <laughs> I just I just want to ask out of the blue here. You you have Emmys, right? <laughs> and how many? <laughs> Thank you for asking. I have 4 Emmys. Three are in my studio apartment, and one is at my parents' house. There's nothing, to be incredibly honest, there's nothing that exciting about winning an Emmy, but there is nothing more exciting than giving it to your parents and letting them just take it around their town. Um, It has gone to my father's Rotary Club meeting. It has gone to my mother's Bunko game. Everyone in Custer, South Dakota has a picture with that Emmy, and my parents take it everywhere. They are delighted. Whereas, like, I... There's nothing not embarrassing I could ever do with an Emmy. It's embarrassing to have them in a studio apartment because there's no place to put them that's not weird. (laughs) That's amazing. Fantastic. Okay, so what separates those that have had a successful career in theater or television or entertainments 
versus those that stop or never try to have a career? I think at least as far as my experience with comedy writers, which I, I will say right away is different for actors. I know plenty of actors who are incredibly talented, uh, lovely, great to work with, and have not broken out and become big stars. But for comedy writers that I know over the period of, say, a decade, all the people I know that were really talented that I would look and be like, why aren't they writing for something that are uh, professional, that are appropriate, and that have stuck it out have eventually gotten jobs. I can't say that that's true entirely for the whole artistic community or that they've always gotten the jobs they've wanted. But even as I started to meet like Broadway stars and, you know, I, I found they are mostly like incredibly professional, kind, like good to work with people. You hear like stories of divas and I'm sure they exist, but I feel like the most, most of the people I've met who are really successful on Broadway or in TV are really just like pretty good people who are very professional and who you can count on to do their job on a regular basis in a good way. Yeah. Nice. Last question. Where can people find out more about you? Twitter, Instagram, whatever, uh, under the name Jill Twist, J-I-L-L-T-W-I-S-S. I'm going to say I'm the main Jill Twist. There are other Jill Twists, but like, I think I have the first page of Google results now for my name, which is pretty good. Um, I also just started a newsletter. Oh. Um, so if you want to go to jilltwist.substack.com, uh, it's really mostly just me naming dogs and talk I talked a lot about Henry Clay this week and how I don't think he's very attractive google him I don't know it's worth it if you're into that I have a newsletter that's amazing awesome fantastic okay well Jill this has been fantastic thank you so much for doing it thank you so much for having me Ethan that was our interview with Jill Twist my takeaways were don't acquire student loan debt pay off your credit cards rather than keep a balance. Now, those aren't always in your control, but she had more advice, which was you can live on a little amount of money even in an expensive city. Save something early and regularly. Put that savings in index funds and take advantage of compound interest. Don't invest in individual stocks and don't try to play the market. Just let the index funds do the work. Now, those ideas of saving and investing in ETFs are well-documented and made famous by Warren Buffett and the late Jack Bogle. But every financial advisor will say the same thing. I encourage you to find an advisor and ask them. The last takeaway is work hard, work hard, work hard. Jill's story of the years it took to be hired as a television writer is amazing. It's unglamorous and exhausting, but it is real. That's it for today. Next week, we talk with musical theater writer Taylor Ferreira in another smart conversation. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Find more information on our website, artisticfinance.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a review so others can find us. Artistic Finance is produced in New York City by Ethan and Nicole Spimel. Producing consultant Anne Nygren-Doherty. Graphics and website by Josh Cutler. Music by Chang Liu.